welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello, and welcome to episode number 57 of the Free Cities podcast. Well, with Storm Pier raging in the background, I don't know whether you can hear it, I'll probably try and edit it out. And obviously today, it's only two days until Christmas. How are you feeling about that? In my house, the emotional intensity is truly palpable. I was speaking to the kids about it at the dinner table last night, funnily enough. My youngest is at this point now old enough to probably know that Father Christmas isn't real, but... We've never actually talked about it. And last night at the dinner table, it came up and we had our first open conversation about the fact that Father Christmas is, well, me, basically. Anyway, I ended up explaining to them, and this is is true, this isn't me just saying this. I'm a 52-year-old bloke and I still feel the magic and excitement in the pit of my stomach after all these years. And I think, and we kind of agreed upon this at the table, that your job as a parent probably should be to try and lay a solid foundation to the fantasy when your kids are small, and then it will last a lifetime. Certainly it did in my case. And we've tried our hardest, at least, to the point of one year I remember climbing a ladder outside the house, up to the top floor of our house, and I jingled some bells outside the kids window while they're all tucked up in bed they didn't have a clue they apparently I mean I've spoken to them about it in later life I'm sure they did anyway I digress back to the show and I suppose I should give you this week a Christmas special shouldn't I well okay I've been holding on to this one specifically for this occasion because out of all the people I speak to I really do enjoy my conversations with Joe Quirk. First time I met him was at Liberty in Our Lifetime two years ago, not last year, the year before, when I interviewed him for a film we were making. And back then it was obvious he's a great orator and overall highly interesting guy. Anyway, this conversation is certainly light-hearted in parts and serious in others. Obviously we talk about seasteading Joe is the president of the Seasteading Institute and extremely knowledgeable on the subject. I mean, from who else could I learn new words such as flotel, coral crete, aquapreneurs and civilization? See what they did there? And if you listen to this pod, you'll know how much I love new words. I really do. Anyway. Enjoy the chat and in particular enjoy Joe's takes on the world and I hope that you all have a very wonderful Christmas if that is something that you are choosing to celebrate over the coming days. If not, 2024 is just around the corner and I'll be honest with you, my spidey senses are tingling. It's going to be a big year next year and that may be for both the better and for the worse, I suspect. I suppose the plan going forward would be to know thyself, as they say, and just keep showing up and doing your thing. If you do that, pretty sure everything will work out just fine. Right now though, and 
for possibly the pen, well, set definitely for the penultimate time this year. I will, in the time-honoured tradition of this podcast, say to you, please, just sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Joe Quirk. Agenda other than obviously talking about Sea Steady. I have to talk about your previous life as another or kind of author because I was just looking through your your list of books that you've written and it's it's a real like talk about a diverse selection of books. I thought it was quite interesting. Um, and and when I look at the books you wrote before as well, it's I wonder how how you suddenly just suddenly fell into the Sea Steading world and then stayed there it's kind of like that's the end of the line isn't it with the with the books when I look at it well look can, I can, can explain it well okay well can I just before because I doubt I don't know how many people know that in this world that you wrote all these kind of books is that is it is there common knowledge I don't I don't think it is common knowledge I reinvent myself and get a new audience over and over can I just read out your your um list sure. of books because it is quite quite funny actually right so we've got um Ultimate Rush, which mm-hmm. is a rollerblading messenger caught in an illegal insider trading ring, right? Uh, then It's Not You, It's Biology, The Science of Love, Sex and Relationships. I mean, that's quite a jump already, um, which was originally titled Sperm are from Men, Eggs are from Women, The Real Reason Men and Women Are Different. Brilliant. Then we've got, um, was it Exalt? which tells the story of love, death, and hope among a, among a community of hang gliders. <laughs> that's brilliant, right? So You laugh at the only one that's not a comedy. <laughs> no, the story, I just love the way, I just copied this off the internet. I don't even know where it came from. It, it, it's the way it writes it. Exalt tells the story of love, death, and hope. Among a community of hang gliders, <laughs> kind of added on the end. Then we've got um, Call to the Rescue, the story of Marine Mammal Centre, the Marine Mammal Centre, obviously. Now we're, and then, since 2014, Seasteading, and um, your Seasteading book, which also has a brilliant title, uh, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. Is, did I get them all there? Are there any others? I've also ghostwritten some books that are very successful that I can't talk about. Oh, but okay. Yeah. That, that, that's even better. So come on then. How do you go from strange sort of like novels to um, a, a sort of like a kind of um, evolutionary psychology manual to then, um, yeah, the, the final boss appears to be seasteading because you haven't written anything else. Well, maybe you have as a, as a ghostwriter. I don't know. but I'm, I'm almost finished with the next book about uh, Chad and Nadia, the first seasteaders, and they're in the crazy manhunt. Right, but you've stopped at seasteading, so I presume you've found your, your, well, what would it be? Nemesis, maybe? I don't know. I don't know what you call that in writing. <clears throat> I, I, think I, I think I found my passion and my mission, because I, I think it, it's, it's something worth convincing people of. But yes, it, it sounds, my series of books sounds zany, but there's an intellectual uh, development going through that whole thing. Oh yeah, go uh, on. Well, 
I could start with It's Not You, It's Biology. I could tell a lot of stories about each book. I could start at the beginning, or we could talk about how it's not how sperm are from men, eggs are from women leads to seasteading. I, I'd like that, actually, because I'm a big fan of evolutionary psychology. I, I, like, I love listening to that. I, you know, I didn't really... I didn't really come across it until you know the last few years. Really, it's been it's become popularized, hasn't it? Really, this idea that that, that <clears throat> there's a evolution. Well, it's just become popularized. Even Jordan Peterson, right. uh, people like that, have really pushed it into the mainstream. So, um, so yeah, come on then. What's the connection? So yeah, I got in early. I realized this stuff was going to get popularized, um, and I was a fiction writer and. and what I do is every time I write a book, I completely alienate that audience and reinvent myself and get a different voice and go find a different audience. So there's actual, there, there's been arguments online about the different joke quirks and stop confusing them. <laughs> and I eventually had to write a bio that it's all the same guy, actually. But wait a minute, how do you, are, are, how have you um, turned off your readers then? What is it about your style of writing that alienates your readers? Well, uh, when people love a book and then they love an author, they want to go back and get more of the same thing. Ah, right. And then they find out I do something completely different. Completely different. I mean, every book is complete. I'm kind of proud of the fact that people say you can't tell it's the same writer. No, I couldn't. The only reason I thought it was unusual is because... I assume there's not many Joe Quirks around. I mean, you know, but I, I didn't think, I thought, oh, there's another Joe Quirk. Ah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, there's only one. Right. <laughs> it's all the same guy. Um, and I guess I'm kind of a voicist. I, I, don't, I, I don't just have a style and write. I figure out what the voice of, to tell a certain kind of story is. So I've done fiction, I've done nonfiction, I've ghostwritten a memoir. Uh, and right now I'm writing a book that's entirely in the voices of the characters. The, the, what real people said, f taken straight from transcripts of what they said, and I interleave the transcripts. So once again, I'm writing a book that's completely different from all the others. But how does writing about this evolutionary psychology of sex lead to seasteading? Yes. Well, um, very early, uh, I started reading scientific studies about human behavior and I discovered evolutionary biology before it became popularized um, and I just became addicted to it and it was before the internet really so I would get up every day and I'd walk to UC Berkeley campus and I'd print out studies and I'd read the studies and go all the way deep into them and look at the graphs and um, and I found it illuminated human behavior so much more sublimely than any psychology or any Aristotle, anything I'd ever read. And I said, man, so I was, uh, you know, I would be in a bar explaining to people like, man, did you know that female, uh, there's a strong correlation between female promiscuity and the size of the male testicles among all primates and uh, and really? I, yeah, that's mean, chapter the two. The bigger the balls, the more promiscuous the woman that's near the balls. Yes, really. And, and this is this is uh, among uh, among large. I, I do the correlation among large apes. Wow. So uh, the way I sold this to publishers is I'm like, okay, here's here's the abstract. Sounds pretty uh, science speaky, doesn't it? Well, here's how I translate that into English. Notice how it's automatically funny. I want to write a book in the voice of a guy who's read these studies and is just going to explain it to people. Uh, but it's a humor book, so it, it makes you laugh. So I'm, 
a lot of the things you discover reading this, it's not, it doesn't just illuminate what's so wonderful about us. It illuminates what's Machiavellian and cynical about it all. Um, I just found it so mind blowing that human emotions, you know, evolved Hmm. that if you think of emotions as instincts Hmm. and instincts come from evolution uh, evolution is won by animals best at getting their genes into the next generation. And then you realize that men and women have two different ways of getting their genes into the next generation. Getting pregnant and getting somebody else pregnant are two very different strategies. And to the extent men and women um, have the same interest in passing on their genes, they're gonna, their emotions are going to evolve to be in harmony you know, finding children cute, getting aroused, all this kind of caring about status, all that. But to the extent men and women have two different ways of passing on their genes, their emotions are going to evolve to be in in conflict. Um, So I kind of take it from there, and I use humor to slip in all these harsh truths about reality. And the book has been translated into, it's 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 19 languages at this point. Amazing. Um, So... I really came to understand that the, the the most powerful force for evolution, for progress in the world, and for design is evolution. So this this microphone I'm looking at right now basically evolved. Uh, there's no one person in charge of designing it. Um, it there's been a variation of a huge amount of forms. P, distributed people select for the best. And over time, we get this marvelous microphone that's working so well that nobody can make from scratch. So it's kind of like a, a global brain creates it. Um, it's, at some point, uh, I was exposed to reason and evidence and realized uh, the libertarians are win the arguments <laughs> uh, and, and became converted to that. But um, I came to realize that governments can't really undergo variation and selection because variation would be a war or a revolution, too much damage. Um, and so governments don't evolve. Um, I can tell you the story of how I, now I came to seasteading. So I was, first I was on a cruise ship. Um, and I noticed the, it was the highest standard of living I had ever experienced. I was living like a very wealthy person with servants taking care of me. And there's, I remember there was ice sculptures and there's infinite marvelous food. And, and I was like, why was this, why is this cheaper than the coastal hotel I stayed in the night before? I don't get it. Um, and instead of enjoying myself on the cruise ship, I was walking around doing, trying to do back of the napkin calculations saying, okay, this thing's probably cost about a half billion dollars. There's this many people on it. It costs the, you know, how much does it cost to run every day? Hmm. I don't understand how this thing makes a profit. It must be some kind of tax play. I don't know what it is. What is that flag? I guess that's a Panama flag. I didn't understand why the floating city was so much better and cheaper than any city I'd ever been in before. Six weeks later, I was at my 10th Burning Man. Really? Yeah. How long ago was that? Uh, was this the year two? Th- I don't know what it was, 2011? Wow. <clears throat> Do you still go? 
No, I, I went to a total of 16 and finally burned out on it, finally grew up. But Burning Man is fascinating um, because it's basically a startup society in a, in a flat, featureless de desert that lasts a week or two. Um, and then every, um, every year it takes itself apart, disassembles, goes away, and then you start up again two weeks later. And every year the press report says, Burning Man is now ruined. There's an, there's an insurmountable crisis. Um, you know, one year it was people are throwing solid things into the porta potties. It's causing the porta potties to get clogged. And the, the porta potty companies, it's, it, it's, it's, clean, it's clocked up their vacuums and cost them a lot of money. And they're going to pull out a Burning Man. And if, if we don't, if we don't, if we lose the porta potty people, we can't do Burning Man. You can't have sixty thousand people with no porta potties. What are we going to do? It's like, oh my God, this could be the end of Burning Man. And then the city gets taken apart, and then it's put up next year. All the porta potties work perfectly. The problems get solved. And then the next year, it's we raise too much dust. Um, you know, how do you enforce a speed limit of five miles an hour for all these cars everywhere? Oh my God, there's a big crisis. We need to have a political argument. Well, I don't know. The city just gets taken apart, put up again, and then the problem gets solved. I noticed that the problems just all get solved in a distributed way without me ever needing to, to argue about it. So I was sort of talking out loud and saying, wouldn't it be interesting if we had more Burning Mans? What if this was going on all year long? Um, what if we could have more startup societies in the middle of the desert? What kind of interesting ways of living together would we, would we have? We'd probably discover all sorts of interesting things. And somebody said, well, you need to learn about seasteading. And I didn't really know what that was. Um, so the, I was introduced to Patry Friedman at Burning Man, who described it to me very, very briefly. Um, and because I'd just been on a cruise ship, I was like, yeah, I can understand why Mankind would eventually move to the water. Um, I think that's technologically realistic. I don't see why anyone would found a nonprofit to make it happen sooner than it would otherwise. And then I just kind of went home. And at some point, I noticed that the Seasteading logo is based on the Burning Man logo. Is it? Yes. It's the Burning Man logo with a cruise ship on the top of it. The, the Burning Man logo is a, is a man holding his arms to the sky. The seasteading logo is a man holding his arms to the sky, standing on water with a cruise ship on, t on top of him. So when I noticed that, I said, why would, a, why would a city in the desert inspire cities on the ocean? I was like, what was this called? Seascaping? And I started Googling it. And at some point, I don't remember when or how, I, I came across the argument that if you founded civilization on the water and city blocks and homes were modular and movable and could be moved about like a floating Venice and you could move city blocks about and you could hook up with other, other you could choose the neighbors you wanted. You could essentially vote with your house. I realized, oh, these would be like modular cruise ships that stay on the water forever and they detach and reattach. And I realized this would be variation by governance providers and selection by residents. And variation and selection is the secret 
recipe for progress in all things. On the ocean, we would have evolution in governance. The problem is we just founded civilization on the wrong third of the planet. And because I'd been on cruise ships and I'd been on boats and I understood barges and I'm like, this is completely doable. I don't think this is hard. I think it's easier than going to Mars. Mm. Um, and look, the, the, the surveillance state is on the rise. Um, the original version of the talk I was going to give at the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference was going to show all the, the reasons that's happening. Like, not only are is Schwab and China and the World Bank, uh, you name it, they're coming for your children and your children are crying out for more of it. People are completely persuaded by monopoly governance. They're, they're brainwashed in it. It's, it's coming for us. It's coming for free people. It's coming fast. It's coming hard. And it's not hiding its agenda. So this is where I want to argue with all my colleagues, which is we're not, we don't want oases. We don't want one Prospera here. We don't want a dozen Prosperas there. We don't even want 6,000 special economic zones all over the world. It's not enough. Um, we need to radically proliferate the alternative examples and completely outcompete the rise of the surveillance state um, with 100,000 better examples. It's the only way freedom can win because they got the technology, they got the AI, they're already probably training it on the blockchain uh, and we're completely outnumbered and it's, it's not, it, and it's coming fast. We need to do this like in the next couple of decades. I want to see hundreds of seasteads in the next couple of decades. In the next 50 years, I want there to be tens of thousands. I want these to be floating Hong Kongs all over the world. Most will probably fail, but the ones that succeed will be selected. And we have two thirds of the planet to do this on. It's technologically doable. It's affordable. The people who get the bug are working on it now. You know, we've inspired probably uh, between nine and a dozen seasteading companies in the last few years. And we need to just radically accelerate the creation of a technology for new societies that are mobile and come to understand that founding civilization on a liquid is fundamentally different than founding it on land. And the reason governments are monopolies is because land is static. It's whoever has the military to control it is going to farm you and your resources. It's funny, <clears throat> you're only the second person I've actually spoken in person to about seasteading, and the other one was Mason yesterday. And as someone who's, you know, pretty open-minded, up until I spoke to Mason, I've always thought, yes, I understand the theory of seasteading, and it's a good idea, but in my mind, it was a bit of a fantasy. And then after speaking to Mason, I've now realized it's absolutely not a fantasy at all. It's very simply doable. In particular, like you say, the, the cruise ship example is a brilliant example, but also just oil platforms that are basically floating platforms. I didn't even realize that. I thought they were attached to the seafloor or something. On, you know, but, but the technology is already there. And, and we can now build very large concrete structures to create harbors because the other thing i always thought of was yeah but what about when you get your first big storm 
And you can isolate yourself from a storm quite easily now, I've realized. I never really thought it through. So it's, it's, it's funny. I, I, I'm in the movement. I'm open-minded. Yet still, I was thinking, nah, it's not, not really a thing. Until I actually sort of... And I just hadn't dug under the surface a bit. But it's a, it's a really interesting realization to come to. That it, it's not just some little fantasy world or whatever, you know? Yeah. There's industries that are on the ocean right now. And in my talk, I showed a picture of one of the floatels. So, you know, you have your oil rigs, you have guys working on them. Some, a lot of oil you have to drill in very high wave conditions with storms. Um, and they'll build floatels for people to live in, the workers, for weeks at a time, a month at a time, um, living there and then commuting by bridge to the... the the oil rig. Yeah, and they can't move, can they? It's not, like, they're not allowed to really move a lot. No, you know. that's They, <laughs> they can be towed. Well, yeah, but what I mean is, you know, that they need to be a solid structure that kind of sits still, even in large waves and stuff. Yes. Pretty much, pretty much. I know there's movement, just like there is in a building, you know, a tall building. But yeah. I would imagine that large waves would make these things, you know, you'd be lying in your bed going backwards and forwards. But that, that's not the case in the slightest, is it? No, the, the place where the waves happen is where the, the air-water interface, the wind causes waves at the surface. But down below, the water can be quite calm while there's a storm going on overhead. And if you could send a piling down and put tons of ballast at the bottom of it, well below the waves, it's like, it's like I call it a sea pillar. It's like sticking a pillar into land. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you can engineer for anything. And since a lot of the oil is in the North Sea or like terrible places like that, they have to engineer these things to be big and strong. Uh, another thing that's on the sea is uh, uh, floating um, wind turbines that are gigantic and are, are on the same principle, the same spar principle. Um, and just as uh, land is very diverse, there's mountains, there's Sahara. In the same way, the oceans, there's like the North Sea and there's the doldrums near the equator. So if you can imagine the earth going around the equator, there's like a thousand mile wide band of calm turquoise seas for the most part, where waves generally don't get higher than five meters. And you have to engineer for the highest possible wave you're gonna experience. And that's larger than any continent on earth. So you can make a flotel at one one hundredth the size and one one thousandth the cost you can make a, instead of do a wind turbine, put a little house on that thing, make it at one one thousandth the size and one ten thousandth the cost and float it in calm equatorial seas. This 45% of the Earth's surface is, is completely unclaimed by any, any state. Uh, it's just that people don't focus on it. So when I first got hooked by this, which I think was about 13 years ago, as I was confronting the challenges, it's like, Oh, well, how do you bring the price down? You know, that, there's that challenge. How do you even engineer these things? There's that challenge. The ocean is very corrosive. Hmm. How, do you, how do you use the, worth, the wolf hill birth process to grow coralcrete on the seastead to encase it in a seashell so it'll last for centuries at sea? Because you need to be out there forever. Did you just say coralcrete? Is that like concrete made out of coral? Yeah, coralcrete. Is yeah. that a new word? or is that, is that a... It's a word that gets used. Huh. It's, I use a lot of puns because seasteading is such a fundamentally way of thinking about how civilization works. I'm trying to s snap you out of 
how you normally think about things. I want to use the word civilization. Yeah, it's so yeah. fundamentally different. We need a different word. An aquapreneur is going to be different than an entrepreneur. Um, but one by one, the, the professionals and the experts have solved all those problems. As far as I'm concerned, the problems have all been solved, uh, except for we just got to get a business going on the sea and prove that these things can pay for themselves. Um, the, all the challenges have been, most of the challenges have been knocked back. The one remaining challenge is the misunderstandings about it. That uh, very intelligent people who could make this happen, it, it seems like a crazy, weird fantasy. And meanwhile, they're all interested in how we're going to go to Mars, um, which, which I think is crazy. I mean, the, the reason to go to Mars is, you know, the Armageddon asteroid that might come and hit the Earth. But the, the, t the chance of that happening in the next 10,000 years is very low. Uh, the chance of a, a complete monopoly surveillance state controlling the entire planet is, is coming fast uh, in the lifetimes of our children. And that's the problem we need to solve. What about, though, the, the problem I would say I still would have with it is the kind of the culture of seasteading or the, the reality of living at sea. Mm -hmm. Because, like you say, very unusual thought. And when you look at the planet, you see there are a bunch of people that are, are, are very much seafaring, but it's quite a small group of people. Um, the, my thought would be, even if this was a vast island, I mean, how vast are these things, potentially? That's the, that's the thing. How, how similar to life on land am I, am I to expect in a certain form of seastead? Well, the, the market shall decide the size of any particular seastead as they develop. But I, I call it the blue frontier to compare it to the western frontier in North America. So at first, it's all these wacky pioneers trying to, with a big vision, trying to get away from the old world and do something different, uh, who go out there and at great personal risks get a covered wagon and build a log cabin in the middle of nowhere. And then they set up farms and start having some food. And then some other people say, that seems like a good place to live and come in. So you get those early adopters, which, you know, we already got that with Chad and Nadia. Um, and then other people get, right away, they had all sorts of people interested in joining their wacky community in the middle of the Andaman Sea. Uh, that would probably be happening right now if that hadn't been quashed by the Thai Navy. There'd probably be, you know, 20 seasteads of eccentric people, and most of us saying, including me, I wouldn't want to live out there. Maybe, it's, maybe sorry, to put in, maybe you should just quickly... Give us the 101 on the story, the Thai story. I, I've heard it myself before, but in this context, it's important, I think. Yeah, so to prove that seasteads can be cheap and they can work, um, the, the first seastead named uh, Ixli, X-L-I-I, after the Roman numeral 42. Why 42? That was a nerd check and you just failed. 42 is... We're not talking restaurant at the end of the world. That's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, the, the, it's, it's the answer to life, the universe, and everything. I passed. It's 42. You I, did pass, yeah. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. So they, they said seasteading is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Uh, they built this thing. They lived on it uh, for two months. And then out of nowhere, the Thai Navy went to the press and declared a death threat against them and sent uh, battleships out to surround them. 
and they managed to scuttle and escape and lived a uh, a 10-day Hollywood movie that would make Tom Cruise jealous. Uh, and when I write this book... Oh, people, right. You're writing about this. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just putting the two together. Yeah. yeah, so I'm actually writing a book. And since I want to get it as tr- close to the truth as possible, and I wasn't there during the manhunt. I was there just before it happened, and then I was there when they were rescued in, in Singapore. Um, but they lived a crazy... 10-day manhunt chase thing. Uh, and, and and one of the ways I convey it, there are many ways to convey what this must have been like, but one is uh, when the death threat happened, they got in a boat and they had a full fridge full, full of food. And over the next 10 days, they lost about 10 to 7 pounds between them uh, with all the food they needed to eat and all the water they needed to drink, and no place to walk on that boat. So they just sheer on stress and adrenaline and sleepness this. I couldn't believe it when I saw them in, in uh, Singapore. They had, they had all lost all this weight. Um, that's the level of stress they were experiencing. What was their v- vessel then? Can you describe it? The, the, their, their seastead, what was it? The seastead, it, it looked like a lollipop. It was, like a lo- it, it was, uh, it was the, the, the most bare-bone things you could, you could imagine. It was a... A spar, I call it a sea pillar, so land people know what that is. It was it was stable on the sea, and then they put a tiny little house on it. That's was it's probably about as big as this room we're sitting in right now. Which is it was, about it, 20, what was it? twenty-five feet across. It was like six meters by six meters. That was the size of their of their thing. And uh, you know, a few years before that, I had a declaration for future seasteaders. I was imagining I was talking twenty-five years in in the future saying you can't say it's a seastead unless you pass the wine test. Uh, you can't have civilization if people are seasick. So you got to get a glass of wine, you got to pour that glass of wine, you got to show waves outside, and you got to look at your table and the wine glass isn't rippling. So I just kind of threw that out there. So Nadia waited until they were in a storm to whip out her cell phone and film high waves outside their door and then pan down and show a glass of wine on the table and it's not rippling. They friggin' passed the wine test. Wow, and on a six-by-six platform. A six-by-six platform on top of the key technology, which is, ocean people call it a spar. For the land folk, I call it a sea pillar. And all it is, the best way to um, talk about it is, think of a wine bottle. Uh, Chad described it yesterday during his talk. A wine bottle, you know, empty the wine, put rocks, you know, two inches of rocks in the bottom of the bottle, put the cork back in the bottle, throw it in the water. It, the, the rocks drag it down, but the neck of the bottle sticks out of the water. And then make waves with your hand. And you'll be amazed that the, the bottle doesn't move. It remains stable. I made a little video myself in a swimming pool. I put a rubber ducky balanced on top of the cork. And I said, watch this. And it, it looks like, oh, is that sitting at the bottom of the pool? No, it's floating. It's not sitting on anything. And the rubber ducky is not falling off. Hmm. Uh, you can go on YouTube and look at my, my video of that. Hmm. Um, and how, does this, how did they move then? When, the, when they, were, they were pursued, right? By... Yeah, so they had a sailboat. Um, so the seastead couldn't move. 
Unless it was towed. Is that how it worked? They, they drag it or they tow it? And, yeah. And, okay. and it, was, it was anchored to the seafloor. So it was, it was stable in one place. So it was a proof of concept. That's what, it wasn't even uh, necessarily the first product. It was just a proof of concept. Proof it could be cheap. Proof that it worked. Proof that in that sea it's very flat and calm. And did they build it themselves in, in Thailand in a harbor somewhere or whatever? It was built by the company Ocean Builders uh, at very low cost. And why Thailand then? Why did they choose to, to... I think it's because the Andaman Sea is often described as a giant lake. Right. Um, but actually, you can get the same thing in many places near the equator. Hmm. It's funny, I was t- when we were talking to Mason yesterday, I made a film years ago about the Bajau, the sea gypsies. And yep. And we lived on boats with them. And Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, it's a BBC film. You can see it. Human Planet, it was called. It's one part episode of a... Of a yeah, I, a thing just about the, the sea. We did different environments and stuff. But before this manhunt happened, I was writing a science fiction, my first science fiction book, well, not my first, uh, about um, seasteading that opens with a, a boy from the Baojiao Laut, Oh yeah, if that's how you pronounce it. Well, Laut just means sea. Baojiao is the, the yeah. tribal name, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I've looked into those people a lot. It's amazing. Well, we, I mean, there's a few really fascinating facts about them as well. There's, do you know about the eyes focusing underwater and stuff? Yes. It's really interesting. And we, had, we, we followed this guy, his name was Sylvin, and he could hold his breath for about five minutes uh, using basically, uh, you know, breath exercises, the same that, that, you know, breath divers do in, you know, in the Olympics and stuff. And you should watch it, actually, because it's a, it's a really phenomenal bit of footage. Because I was down there when, when it was, I was shooting stills. And we recorded him dive down, pick up a rock, and just walk along the bottom of the seabed with a, with a, a harpoon and just shoot people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got, I, I might have seen it. You probably have. I mean, I was there watching that with my own eyes. I've got some great photos of it as well. It's, and and it, it was, yeah, it's, it's a, we were all in scuba gear, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, it's but, extraordinary. Yeah. It's extraordinary. But, but, they, but they did talk about, I mean, one thing is they no, had no passports. They had no, they had no nationality. That was interesting in itself. But They're also, stateless. Yeah, yeah. But also they, they, um, they, they did have the problem of bad seas. And they, you know, because we flew around that whole area in a helicopter. We were in this in Sab- off, off the coast of Sabah, and you could see these little communities everywhere. And a lot of them had stopped being nomadic and started positioning. They were they were farming seaweed and stuff mm-hmm. just on stilted huts out in the middle of nowhere. I've got some amazing pictures of just one hut on stilts and literally for kilometers around, nothing else. It's am- just, you know, and I often wondered what it's because my issue as well, once again, with a six by six platform is could I do that? No, I don't think I could. I don't think I could live on a six by six platform, even as an experiment. I think that would drive me kind of crazy. I don't know. Could you? Uh, probably not. But uh, the CEO of Ocean Builders, his plan was to go out there and meditate alone on the thing for, I think, three months. <laughs> um, so there's some people that like that kind of thing. Solitude. I mean, Chad and Nadia will always tell you they loved it. Seeing the sunrise and the sunset, the infinite views. Um, it's extraordinary. Uh, but then a, a bunch of people went to the website saying, yeah, I want the next one. I want to come join you out there. So this is how the community scales up. Um, 
if they and then if they are in different places around the world and they're bigger uh, if you once you demonstrate that one little thing works you can build others what's the end of the Thai story though how does it end uh it ends with an insane rescue into Singapore they they were uh, ejected from every country so countries weren't letting them in but for for the reason that Thailand was after them or that they just didn't have Thailand declared them a threat to Thai sovereignty really um and they they tried to get into another country they didn't let them in they had to just do a mad dash through the most pirated waters in the world into Singapore and go all the way to Singapore and Singapore is built is basically a fortress so how are they going to get into Singapore i was in singapore at that time providing a diversion <laughs> put a load of flags up or something <laughs> no i was i was giving a speech to explain what why seasteaders were in singapore because a secret rescue thing was arranged um and i'm not i'm not going to give away the the whole book but it's uh, it's 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 an extraordinary true story yeah. the craziest man on you can imagine and why to the platform uh the the Thai navy uh, confiscated it so they they've got it they've got it yeah and uh, as i remember um they were within their rights to be in that as, from a legal perspective they were more than 12 miles off the coast etc etc is that right they were more than 12 miles off the coast and they didn't they didn't commit a single crime right not even minor infractions so what i mean obviously that throws up a few interesting um conundrums then for seasteaders because you know the whole free cities movement is in its infancy and we're we're sorely lacking in good examples of things but they're starting to happen now you see prospera having a legal battle with honduras and the honduran government etc etc and all these things add to our understanding of what's possible what the best route forward is blah 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 so so what about what about seasteading now you you've you've shown that governments actually don't really care i i think thailand was a fluke um, I don't think other governments are going to declare war on a floating house the size of a shack. <laughs> that's the best way to put it. Yes, correct. Um, that's the other thing I love about seasteading. If, if the land governments don't find cruise ships to be a threat, um, if the United States doesn't find the Cayman Islands to be a threat, if, if uh, Malaysia doesn't find Singapore to be a threat, if socialist Venezuela doesn't find Trinidad and Tobago a threat, which is something like six miles offshore. I just don't think um, a seastead communities floating 12 miles out providing better services is going to uh, provoke the immune system of the nation states. I think you could just be scaling these things up and slowly win people over. It just made me remember me something from my childhood, the Vietnamese boat people. Do you remember that? They were like refugees from Vietnam that were that were trying to find a place to live, and that everyone was turning them away. Is that is that is that the true story of it? I was a kid. It was in the news every day. That's the same kind of thing. Although they're probably looking for for residency on land, but there is a history of people not liking people arriving or being close by. You know, who on boats or whatever. You know, is there the the most interesting things in the world? are not being filmed. Uh, and one of the things I find very interesting that there are, ocean people will tell you that, that what you're talking about is already happening, um, which is people who like live on catamarans, mm. 
who are not getting taxed, who are staying quiet. Mm. They're part of a whole community. They go to the same ports. They, they trade with the same people. They do the same things. And they, they just sort of, they're kind of off the grid living on boats. Uh, they're not, so the cameras pointed poor people that are fleeing mm. bad governments and desperate to get into other places. There because is. it's such a humanitarian tragedy. But there's uh, people just living on boats that, that travel the world or stay in one place. And and that's got quite a lot of... I mean, if you if my Instagram feed didn't go by, that, that kind of lifestyle is, is becoming idealized much more now. People are often talking about it. But also, and I know this from first-hand experience, there's a, there's a billionaire class that does it as well in, yeah. in, a, in a much more sinister way, I think, <laughs> in my opinion. But um, You mean the yacht class? Well, I mean the proper yacht class, 60 people working on the boat and stuff and, yeah. and doing the circuit each year and all meeting up at the same events and um, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, 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 have, I have a connection with some people that work in that world and I've often heard some quite... Well, the, the, the impression I get is that it's a lawless place and, and in, when you're on a catamaran, like you say, it kind of is. But when you're an incredibly wealthy person, that means a whole different thing. <laughs> What do these things do? I, 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 well, I, I, I can't really say because this is a, some, these are confidential conversations I've had with people. But, but like I say, I can sum it up as for the same reason that if, you fly, if you're sailing a, a catamaran around the world, people leave you alone. And if you're on a yacht, which is basically the size of a cruise ship on the whole, um, people leave you alone. And, but everyone knows who you are and all your friends do the same thing and you, you all meet up in St. Kitts or, and, then, and, then, and then everyone moves to there. Or, but it's a way of, of living outside the system which requires, I mean, proper wealth, you know, fuck you, money. Not, not um, um, it's, it's a, yeah, but I think catamaran life um, that you see on TikTok is, is a version of that. It's just much more, um, this is like the blue collar version of it, I suppose. You could say. Yeah. So there's all sorts of income levels. You can get your yacht uh, or you can be the Bajau Lao living on, on the sea as stateless. I mean, those, those are tragic stories, but there's a whole middle ground. And suppose you could stay out there forever and live on a permanent floating city or town or neighborhood or house. Uh, all I care about is something that's scalable. And as far as I'm concerned, what Chad and Nadi achieved is scalable. Um, and there's waters like that all over the world, and now they're on the other side of the world doing it. In in the same on a on a platform, they have uh, Ocean Builders has some floating structures, and they're going to build a lot more. Tell me, are Ocean Builders the only company making prototypes? Uh, that's hard to say. I think they're they're the most advanced, but there are several companies building things and working th on things. Many of them have an arc in the name. It's kind of interesting. A bunch of these people all put independently put ARC in the, in the name of their... Makes sense. But uh, yeah, if you go to the Seasteading Institute website and you look at active projects, you can check out various of these uh, projects. So what is... Talk, let's talk about prototypes then and working models. Um, I remember actually last year in your talk, I didn't get to see yours this year because I was recording new episodes of this podcast, but you showed a, a bunch of examples what stage are is the community at at the design and building process of of anything to do with seasteading 
When the Seasteading Institute announced that we're going to develop the first classification society for seasteads, professionals in the ocean industry started taking us seriously and reaching out to volunteer to help. Um, so what we're doing now is, uh, with the guidance of some ocean industry people, we're deriving. Let me let me explain to you how to make sea, how we're going to make seasteads legal. Okay. So, Wait a minute, what's what's illegal about them, or, or, or what do you mean the, by that? They're not defined in international law. So, in order to, if you're on the sea, you're required to have a flag. Otherwise, any country is free to board you, and you have no protection. Right. So you can have an get an open registry flag. You can flag with Liberia, and then you can sail your catamaran, or maybe not your catamaran, but your your ship or your yacht. Which is how cruise liners actually work, isn't it? Yeah. That's how they live outside the system in a way. I mean, it's a, it's a strange little quirk in maritime law, I think. That, I mean, when I heard about it, I was very surprised that you can just get a flag from anywhere and um, use that as a way to sort of insulate yourself from other nations in a way. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a core part of the seasteading idea as well, isn't it, really? Uh, something that sounds like it will probably never change because the first time I heard about it I thought oh they'll stop that but then you realize they're doing it on cruise ships and cruise ships aren't going anywhere yeah cruise ships are de facto self-governing floating cities I know it's bizarre this is that this was the thing that clicked when I was talking to Mason and um I couldn't believe I hadn't thought of it and then added that to the fact that floating platforms are already an industrial reality and used a lot yeah and you you can't doubt that one day these things are going to exist you, 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 unless civilization collapses because people are just going to make these things because yeah. we're, we're good at making things humans are good at making things you know uh, you know imagine you're on a cruise ship it's flagged in Panama you're uh, up in Alaska uh, waiting for a glacier to calve uh, two drunks get in a fist fight and in the mayhem, an old 90-year-old lady has a heart attack. You're not going to call 911 back to Panama. It's going to take the ambulance a long time to get there. Anything that happens has to be dealt with on that ship. Yeah. And what I just described happens every day on cruise ships. Uh, there are thousands of them. There are hundreds of them. And, and uh, you know, a, a, a population equivalent to Taiwan every year rides cruise ships. That, that's just made me, that's given me a question. How do they, how do, I mean, is it, is it too, too much of a stretch to say that during, in the, between ports, they kind of have their own legal system on board? I don't think that's a stretch. That, functionally, that's what happens. So, do they, they, like have, they have private a police security. Yeah, yeah, they have a private security. Right. right. So, a captain is, is fundamentally a dictator when he's at sea. Uh, he's a tin pot dictator and he can, he has a lot of leeway to do whatever he wants. So he can lock you in the brig. He even dresses up like a dictator as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he kind of looks like one. <laughs> yeah. when, I, when I talk about this in my talks, I show a picture of, of a captain posing on his cruise ship. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of funny. He looks like a tin pot He looks dictator. like Sasha Baron Cohen. He's dressed like it and he's got sunglasses. He doesn't realize he looks like that, but I do that to make the point. And then I ask, like, well, why doesn't this guy flog his passengers and, and keelhaul his crew? What stops him from being a tyrant? Uh, and, and the answer is uh, the customers have choice. 
um, you can go to another cruise line and put him out of business. Uh, and the same goes for employees. Uh, employees can quit, quit one cruise line and go to another as they get more experience. And there's no angels involved here. These are all, all people with human nature. I'm sure uh, the guy would love to flog a couple of difficult passengers. But since, uh, since the customers have choice and the employees have choice, the governance keeps improving. And it works so well that when you're sitting on a cruise ship, it doesn't occur to you to argue about who the aldermen should be or who the governor should be or how you should vote or what the politics of the ship should be. You don't even find out who the captain is because you don't care. All you care is that everything works. Hmm. And so no one argues about cruise ship politics. All they have to do is just say, I like something better and I'm going to write a negative review online on Yahoo. And the cruise companies are going to panic about that. And the employees can go online and complain, this is not fair, that's not fair. And they, they, they complain about that too. So you're causing competition among all these floating cities causes people to behave more civilly. Um, so you can't get away with the same level of corruption. These societies are not perfect, but they, you know, a lot of elderly people ride on these things. Mm -hmm. you, you can get sued. Um, you got to have a helicopter to take people to... Uh, to a, to a hospital. And, and they have a lockup, they have a kind of jail on board, do they kind of thing? I suppose. They, have, they have jails on board, you know, you can call them that. They call them the brig, I guess. Well, they have yeah. medical centers. Yeah. And the captain is free to just drop you off on an obscure island and abandon you. Really? Sure. They do it all the time. Really? Well, if yeah. someone's too rowdy, they just say, get up. Yeah. We're leaving you here. Sue me in Bahamas court. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so, so you can be ejected from your floating city. Okay, then. So why aren't um, residential boats a thing, then? Or are, they probably are, are they? They are. I just, uh, I just spoke on one. Um, 13 years ago, when I discovered seasteading, I was looking for precedence, and I immediately discovered the world, which is a... It's not a cruise ship. It's a, it's a big boat with um, uh, condos on it of different sizes. And uh, generally high net worth people are able to buy condos on this thing. And this thing travels the world. Constantly. Constantly. And, and goes everywhere. So imagine, you know, you're in Istanbul. You, you get off the ship, you go visit stuff. You come back, go to sleep, wake up. Now Paris is on your doorstep. I'm, I'm, I'm summing it up, but... Um, and I always thought, man, this is the most advanced seastead in the world. In fact, it's a priestead. Wouldn't it be amazing, I said 13 years ago, if I could give a presentation on that ship and explain to those residents of that ship why they are the world's foremost seastead. Well, finally, like last month, my wife and I were sponsored to go on a 10-day cruise. On that exact ship. On that exact ship. Um, and, and they asked me to give three talks each an hour long. And I called them the talks Seasteads Solve Political Conflict. The, the next talk was called Seasteads Heal the Ocean. And the last talk was called The Eight Great Moral Imperatives of Seasteading. How did it go down? It couldn't have gone better. Um, like the people who came to the talk came to all three talks. And then afterwards, you know, I was supposed to make myself available um, for breakfast or whatever if someone wanted to talk to me. So I had myself... I was talking to a lot of people on the ship about why they are seasteaders and they were interested. Um, 
it was it was wonderful. It, it, it was frustrating. They had very strict rules against fundraising, which I completely understand. Um, and I was reminded of that repeatedly. There's lots of rules. <laughs> yeah, I know. But they are de facto self-governing, and it doesn't even occur to them. So how do you set... What, what is it about seasteading, though, that, that, that would interest them when they've already got that? Like, how do you convince them that a seastead's better? Is it more space, more more sort of like, you know... Well, why should there only be one world? What if there could be thousands of worlds? Yeah, sure. But but a boat, a seastead and a boat are going to be very different things, aren't they? I get the impression that a seastead might be more like an island. Yeah. Whereas a boat is more like, well, it's a bit like a mall or something, isn't it? It's like, you know, you're going up and down a lot and, you know. Yeah. I, I call it, a cruise ship is like going camping and taking your mall with you. Right. Okay, but and the nowadays, you know, they've got like fun fairs on them and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, they? they're incredible, really. They, yeah, this particular ship was very nice. It had restaurants. It had sizable apartments and small apart—not apartments, but condos, big ones, small ones. It's for all different kinds of people. Um, and uh, but it's a fundamentally different technology. If you're floating in high waves on a boat, you're going to get seasick. You're going to be rocked all over the place. A boat. A ship stays stable by moving. Okay. A seastead has to stay stable by hol- holding still. So instead of moving through the waves, you, it, you have to go deep beneath the waves uh, with, with, with ballast. So, okay, w- what was the result then? Did you get any emails like a couple of weeks later from people saying... One couple said, yeah, we want to be on your newsletter. Um, I got word back that... One of the guys, uh, one of the people who came to my talks and asked lots of good questions was in a port somewhere and announced them, them as seasteaders. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't, uh, I, I put the bug in their heads and we'll see where this goes. Well, like I say, for, for me, there was a, I can, I can see the evolution of my understanding of it. And there, there, there seems to be a kind of a hurdle that you need to get over. That was my case, because I understood the theory of it all. But for some reason, I hadn't quite clicked that it was a reality. Maybe if you're already a seafaring person, you'll understand that that's more of a possibility. I don't know. But I suppose it, the other problem is it is still pretty out there. It's like people talking about going to Mars. We kind of know it's probably going to happen, but I don't know many people who are envisaging Mars, like, you know, thinking about it, really. Yeah. It's probably a very small subset of the world that is, and I think that's probably true of Seasteaders. The, the reason I'm newly enthusiastic and encouraged is I've, I'm now discovering that people in the ocean industry have been watching us for a while mm. and just sort of staying quiet. And it's not until we started moving on this classification project which i still haven't explained yeah we should go back to that because i am still i've got a big circle around prototypes here yeah so uh you have to have a flag yeah if chad and had had a flag the thai navy would have essentially been declaring war (laughs) or it would have had an act of aggression against a country so that's the big lesson from would you say that's the big understanding and learning from that whole experience Yes. I mean, we knew that ahead of time, but we didn't think anyone would care just about a proof of concept. They just wanted to make a proof of concept so they had something to talk about with Thailand. They were mm. planning on, they were doing their best to work with Thailand. Mm. Um, so if you, so what do you need, how do you get a flag? 
Well, you need to be defined in, as a vessel in international law. Uh, there is no uh, category. There is no category of vessel known as a sea state. It's a completely different technology. It's sort of like a flotel. It's a, it's a lot like a spar. Like they know what all these things are there. But now suppose it's a home. Suppose it never comes into port. We want a flagging registry to recognize that as a unique thing. But you can't apply the rules of the giant spars. You can't apply the rules of the uh, 100... flotels, though? Yeah, $100 million flotel. That's not what it's going to be. It's going to be smaller than that. So we're, we want to go to flagging registries and say, this is smaller, it stays on the sea. It's a lot like all these other things. We, you take the rules from these different structures and you put them together on a seastead. And now we have a new type of vessel and we want it to be recognized. Well, in order for that to happen, you're going to need, in order for the, um, the high-ranked flagging registries to recognize that, they're going to need marine insurance. They're going to need insurers to say, Okay, we've done the actuarial analysis. We know the risk of this. It's in calm waters. It's small. We're willing to insure it. But the insurance company relies on classification societies. There are at least 50 of those uh, operating on the ocean, basically classifying your boat, classifying your spar, classifying your flotel as different kinds of structures. But there is no seastead classification society. So what we're doing is, is we're develop. So it goes classif- The classification society develops the safety rules for the seastead, puts their imprimatur on it, says we declare this safe, and we're staking our reputation on this. Then you, they hand that to the insurance company, and the your insurance company says we're willing to insure this thing. Then the flagging registry, feeling reassured, says okay, we'll put our flag on it. At that moment, two thirds of the Earth's surface is open. For seasteading. Do they have to be a specific design, or can you just classify seastead in general and have a little bit of variance there? Now, if you want to take a structure that already exists, like a barge or a flotel, you could do it that way. Um, but we, we want to, I think most seasteaders of the sort that are being built that I know of, um, and if we want to go to the high seas and you want to be comfortable and stable, you need to build this new thing, which is basically a spar. Spars have been in use on the ocean since the Beatles broke up. I mean, spars are known technology. Uh, they've been around almost as long as I've been alive. But they're used for other things, not for someone to have a house on it and live on it. Though they're used for, though flotels use them. So we're talking about a type of thing that's never been on the sea. So we need to codify the safety rules for these things, get them insured, and declare a new type of vessel category. It's not a boat, it's not an oil platform, it's a seastead, and I want it to be called a seastead. Mm. And get that, and get a flagging registry to recognize that kind of vessel and flag it. And what kind of time scale have you got on that, do you think? As, as soon as possible. How long does it take? I mean, bureaucracies like that, in my experience, take, can take a while. Well, uh, this is why seasteading is better than working with governments, because the Insurers want to make money. Mm. The classification society wants to make money. And the flagging society wants to make money. So the flagging registries have shown more interest in seasteading than, than the governments have mm. um, because they're looking to get in ahead of what they see as the future movement of something new on the sea. Um, so if they think, you know, 
we have people from the industry who think seasteading might happen and is curious to talk to us about what we can do about making it happen. And so you're pretty adamant then that the prototype that Ocean Builders has come up with, which adheres to that kind of pod on the top with a very long ang- uh, um, bottle shape on the bottom, yeah, that's going to be the one, do you think? You're going to see variations on that. You're not going to see something brand new. I think we're going to see variations on that. And then very quickly, that's going to inspire things that are brand new. Now, the other active seasteading projects are are working on different models. And honestly, last night, Mason showed me the schema, the blueprints for what he's designing, which is a mobile seastead that could be categorized as a boat that that could get there sooner because... He'd make an end run around our efforts to create a new category of structure on the sea. He could just flag it as a boat. Yeah. I mean, well, th- like there's so many ways to it? go. What's wonderful about Seastead is that when people get interested in it, they're all pursuing these different ways to do it. Hmm. Um, so the, the evolution of different sorts of uh, solutions is already happening. Can you give me a rough uh, list of the categories then? Because, for example, the, the Ocean Builder one, do they link together to form a bigger structure, for example? Not at first. I, obviously, that's a thought, is it? It's a thought. Like, well, you want to get there. I imagine they they could have two or three, and you could have temporary gurney bridges uh, connecting them. But in the waves, you'd want to pull. You know, if there's a big storm, you'd probably want to put those gurneys in because you don't you don't want seasteads banging together. Yes. But if you had a you had a table with four spars. So you had like a city block. So there's multiple ways to get stability. One is for the spar to go deep down and have lots of ballast. Another way is for the seastead to be so wide, if it's wider than the period of the wave, then you can get, you either have to go deep or go very wide to get stability on the, on the ocean. And the other thing that Mason alerted me to was the fact that you can create a harbor at sea anywhere. You can just create a ginormous dome to insulate yourself from the outside world. And then you could just pop as many seasteads in there as you want. They don't even have the problem of sea uh, waves at all, even, even if it doesn't matter. I mean, right. that seems to me to be one of the more realistic ideas because engineering wise, they're quite simple to have floating harbors, which basically then I think people would have more inclination because you'd get boats as well, wouldn't you? You'd, yeah. You'd get a lot of sea people there and that's kind of what you want, isn't it? Yeah. You want a community. Yeah. If you limit it to to, to sort of these floating you know, ocean builder ones, yeah, people have got to buy them and, go, and, and then get them there and that's going to take a long right. time probably. So when you, you talk about sea setting, I'm focused on the minimal viable product to get the first one, two, three going. But then soon after that, you might want to have a floating, imagine something in the shape of a horseshoe or a big giant U that floats sort of as a a boat dock. Hmm. It's also a natural wave breaker, so boats can go inside the U. And people have designed many versions of these. Um, You know, we have videos of different, different, we have a Singaporean who designed something like this. Um, And then you can go in there and you could live on the, inside the U or and you or you could live on the U itself and then Mason is thinking we could just put a big dome over that thing yeah and then you'd really be protected from the elements but each of these steps has to be paid for um so we, we can talk about 
seasteading year one, seasteading year 20. I'm imagining a big dome over a, a floating harbor being a, a couple steps down the line. Yeah, like you say, it's an evolution, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm interested in the replicator. I'm interested in the thing that can, that works. And if you do one of those, then, then the sky's the limit. What kind of price is there on one of these ocean builder things, do you think? Well, uh, they're making them fancy and futuristic, and they're under a million dollars, generally. Um, I think they're willing to take a loss on the first few because they're so dedicated to getting it started. Um, but I, if you wanted to do a bare bones one, it'd probably be in the hundreds of thousands. And how do you feel about the first few prototypes being a bit of a kind of tourist attraction? Does that matter? You know, is that that's not against the kind of seasteading ethos? Not at all. Because that's probably what's going to happen, isn't it? There's going to be an Airbnb or something. Yeah, isn't there? we call it the CBNB. As a matter of fact, Titus Gable himself came up with that pun. C, as in S E A. Yeah. CBNB. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's the easiest. Again, if we're going to focus on the first thing that's going to work, we can always talk about big cities and all these big plans, but. What's the first business that's going to work on the smallest possible, most affordable seastead? I think it's going to be something like a, a CB&B, a tourist attraction. People want to go and live on it, see the underwater room, scuba dive around it, get used to the lifestyle, a meditation retreat. And then we, you know, we build up to eventually to our, you know, medical research <laughs> and um, uh, uh, affordable uh, health care. 12 miles off your coastal city. Yeah, that, that's true as well. And I was thinking, when we were, you know, casinos, that those kind of industries that often come up against huge regulations on the mainland. Yeah. Floating, I mean, the harbour one as well, the floating harbour idea really inspires the, those kind of thoughts as well because you can easily imagine quite quickly cruise ships will dock for for a one night because it'll be an, a, an interesting thing to do in the beginning. Oh, look, let's go and check out the floating city. You know? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's not hard to bring in quite a lot of income, you know, relatively quickly, I think, when you're a first mover. By the time people are living on them, it won't be a thing. But in the first instance, when it's a novelty... I could see that it's quite be quite an easy thing to a publicize and b have people visit and generate some kind of income because um, it's a it's a, a curiosity. Let's I, say I, I agree. I think that's how it would start. Hmm. It would be you can get in your ferry in twenty minutes. You can be twelve miles out, you know, with a with a good motorboat. Um, but that's shorter than my commute. Yeah, and uh, you can go stay on this thing. And get a feel for it and say, wow, those seasteaders really built this weird thing that really works. Isn't that cool? Um, if you look at underwater hotels, they just have one underwater room. People pay thousands of dollars a night to stay in those things. I didn't even know they existed. Where, where, yeah. where are they? They're, 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 all, they're on various coasts. There's about a dozen of them around the world that have an underwater hotel room. And it's like luxury staying. And you get to look out your window at the, at the, at the coral and the crabs and the... And the fish and the... And how do they work? Same principle. They're not floating. They're just on the land. And then part of it goes down into the sea. And then uh, you can stay beneath the sea. So very um, close to the coast. Very close to the shore, I mean. Literally on, on the shore. Hmm. Now, there is one in uh, Dubai, which I've actually seen, that's actually floating. But I don't, I don't know if that gets used much. Um, that's a point. That's one thing I haven't thought about. The, 
the Middle East is the kind of place that's going to experiment with these things. And they've got some very flat seas there as well, haven't they? They sure do. Is that, have they shown an interest in... Because the, that, that's the kind of part of the world that likes to do things like that as a, as a bit of a show-off and a bit of a look yeah. at you know, what we've done. The, the answer is yes. Lots of uh, countries in that area are looking to do things like this. Yes, floating but, hotels and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Though they're not explicitly interested in seasteading. No, what, but it's all, yeah, like you say, but, it's, all, it's a new evolution, isn't but it? But they're going to be developing the technology. Yeah. Because <laughs> they actually make islands, don't they, already? And that's yep. a real ball ache compared to probably making a floating island, I would have thought. Yeah. And uh, the environmentalists get really upset at the... Uh, uh, Pulling sand up from the from the beneath the sea to build false islands, so you can build, put your mansion on there. But imagine seasteads. Every seastead you build increases the amount of life on the ocean. They're ne they're floating coral reefs, yeah. and if they're going to last on the sea, you're going to need a coral reef on there. Is there a climate change angle to this, or do you not go there? Uh, if you if you care about the ocean, you should live on a seastead. What about rising ocean? levels and stuff like that because presumably there's going to be more <laughs> real estate you can if, imagine if we to believe you know Kiribati is going going beneath the seas you can imagine people there transitioning to into living on floating islands um suppose the people of Kiribati as the, as their country goes away they slowly transition to seasteads uh does that mean they're not a country anymore if, if all the land goes away Interesting. If they're recognized as a floating country, now we have a precedent. Hmm. Um, and now suppose someone builds another one right next door. Are they also a floating country? Who's, who, is there, are there people at the organization looking into these kind of things? Like if you were to create... Do you, is, is even the, um, the goal to create a new country? Or is it something else? Is it just to, to be different, to be outside the system, to not be anything, to be stateless or whatever? To, to, the goal is to bring a Silicon Valley sensibility to the problem of monopoly governance. And the more startups we can create, the more we'll discover better solutions for living together. Hmm. Whatever that is. Whatever it is. And we, and we, pro we can't imagine it. Um, but we have to experiment. Just as I couldn't have imagined this microphone back in 1900. We have to allow evolution to work and provide solutions to us. Have you got a personal prediction as someone who's obviously a bit of a deep thinker, especially in the sort of dark arts of evolutionary psychology? What do you think might be? What's your vision, say, 50 years in the future? And, 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 and what is your vision even with the current state of the world? Incorporate the, the state and what it's doing how does how do how does all this how does all this stuff work out? Well, um, I think the future is fundamentally unpredictable. It's black swans and golden swans from now on. the The thing that happens that's going to matter is always the thing we're not talking about. Um, I've got to say, what are we not talking about? You can't say that and not expect that question. Well, we we don't know, but never. So when you, we make these predictions about the future, we're going to be wrong because. The human mind is not wide enough to predict the crazy thing that's out there. Heck, most people aren't even predicting seasteading is going to happen. But if I were to set up what I'm afraid of and what I'm hopeful for, you say 50 years from now? Yeah. So I, I, I think we have a choice. 50 years from now, 
total surveillance, state-controlled, money-controlled, uh, social credit system, global. Or we start proliferating superior examples on the ocean. And uh, our grandchildren are living in a world where they can't imagine why they would argue about state politics. Uh, because it's like they're on cruise ships. It's like things just keep getting better. I don't, and then just take that for granted. And they're looking back at history the, the way we look back at wars. Like, why were they fighting over that? It doesn't make sense. They're going to say, like, why were they arguing over politicians? Why were our grandparents doing that? It's so primitive. Um, Can there be both? Could you see a future of both? Both the surveillance state and is it a bifurcated world? I think there could be both. I think if you have a complete surveillance state, maybe seasteading uh, won't help. I think uh, uh, if, you know, I think the thing I fear most is the governments all getting together and saying, we're declaring the whole ocean our territory because we're going to save the ocean because of environmentalism and climate change. We, we need complete power. Well, well they've done that in, with the Antarctic, haven't they? The, and, and space. They did that in the 60s with space, I think. No one can own a bit of space, apparently, according to the United Nations. Even if you're the one that goes out there and spends all the money to get up there and find a place and build a civilization, it apparently belongs to the yeah. people back here. Yeah, but if, if you're actually on Mars, I think you can redefine what owning means. Of course. Yeah, I mean, can you do that at the sea? That's the question. I hope so. But I think seasteads have to win the hearts and minds of humanity the way that Singapore won the hearts and minds of people all over the world. No one cared about Singapore until they became successful, very humane, successful society. I spent a lot of time there. It's, it's a pretty amazing place. Okay, so last question then. Um, how do we win the hearts and minds of the general population for the notion of living free at sea? The way cruise ships have slowly scale up um, and get people interested. I, I always point out people people step off land onto a cruise ship and they don't change their ideology, even though they're choosing to vacation in private governance at sea. They don't say it's that way. They just say, it's this awesome ship and I get to eat and drink all I want and ride the water slides. Um, same thing when they go to Disney World. So um, we want to win not by convincing people people through arguments, but by simply providing better choices. Criticized by creation, as you said on our film last year. Criticized really, by creation. That really stuck with me, actually. That, that, we used that as a soundbite on the film we made about liberty in our lifetime last year. And you said it. I'd never heard it before. It's attributed to Michelangelo. Is that right? Yeah. I should have uh, said that. I hope I didn't make... No, no, it didn't matter. I just never heard it before. I think it's a really f perfect way of describing the system of opting into something new. And um, yeah. Yeah. Stop arguing, start seasteading. Okay. That's what we say. Well, Joe, we didn't argue even, but uh, I'm, I'm definitely on board, which is, that's a pun in itself, isn't it? I, I didn't even mean that, but. I'm stealing it though. <laughs> Surely you've heard that one before. You know, I said, apparently, you know, I said, I spoke to Mason yesterday and I said, I came up with vote with your boat. 
And you told me yesterday, no, we've already got that one. Well, it, it, he said, he put it in his talk and he said that he'd never heard of it before. <laughs> well, I, I, it's good that you thought of it because I, I think a video was made 14 years ago called Vote With Your Boat about seasteading. Uh, and then we lost that phrase and then you brought it back. So now Mason is using it. Well, yeah, he put it in his talk. But I, I thought I'd invented it. But there is nothing new in this world, is there? Everything's been thought of before, kind of, anyway. Anyway, thanks, Joe. Loved this conversation. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super interested in how it all evolves now. I'm, I'm on, I, like, I really am on board. I think it's a really... I think because it... Mainly because the Free Cities idea, um, it really is happening on the sea already, like you say, on cruise ships. It's actually happening. And, and everyone's obsessing over doing it on land and, and struggling for working examples. But there is a kind of pretty much a working prototype already happening on, on, on... And people, like you say, don't even know it. Yeah. Which is kind of like what we're after, in a way. Yeah. The, the, the proof of concept is flourishing on the sea for many decades now. Yeah. And, and thanks for sort of bringing that to my attention, because that, that is a... That it, it, it's, it's a big part of my Free Cities journey to, to acknowledge that. And I'm surprised I didn't spot it myself. Yeah. But, but it's really useful. Yeah. And I think our movement needs to confront the fact that we don't want oases of freedom. They're not going to last. We want to completely outcompete the state and put it out of business and give, pe give people alternatives as quickly as possible. Yeah. Hallelujah. Well, good luck with everything. And uh, thanks for coming on, Joe. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.